welcome to Parents Just Don't Understand, a podcast about children's media, parenting, and the nature of childhood. And welcome also to episode two of our month-long ghostly spookified trick-or-rating treat zone. Uh, Tonight's subject is a, well, somewhat contentious one, children and horror movies. Do these two things go together? Should they be kept utterly separate? Will you destroy your child's young brain with terrifying visions of the dark beyond? I'm confident we'll be able to answer all those questions and more once and for all, but we're going to need some help. And so tonight we are joined by our guest for the evening, uh, film writer and dare I say horror expert and podcaster Josh Lewis, host of the Sleazoys podcast. Welcome to the show, Josh. Ah, thanks for having me, Kurt. Yeah. Glad, uh, glad you thought at me when you were like, how do I not destroy my child's brain or destroy my child's brain? Or destroy you know, my whichever. child's brain. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And that's definitely something that um, uh, I'm, it's, it's almost a shame that my partner isn't on because we are, a very, we are of somewhat different minds about this where I'm kind of like, you got to scare him a little bit. Um, but uh, but I'll, I'll try and fill in a little bit of, of her perspective as well. So Josh, over on your show... You explore really, I mean, not just horror, but really all forms of, I guess, genre filmmaking of the 20th century. But one of the things that I always uh, appreciate about it is that you you put these genre films, and especially horror, in the context of kind of the, the time and the atmosphere in which they were created. Uh, and I think especially when you talk about kids' horror, that's or, you know, kids and horror, uh, that's extra important because kids often, like, lack that. They're not They're not coming into it with the... The, the baggage that, that an adult would have it seems like no yeah for sure like there's there's a lot i find that um you know there's there's not just a historical context but a lot of the time kids are still developing like visual literacy which is kind of a huge thing that i honestly think should be kind of taught a little bit more in schools i mean you teach kids how to read you should i think teach kids how to watch and one thing that we really focus on or that I've I've always been really keen on focusing on when we talk about genre movies is talking about um, sort of like the formal elements of shooting and directing a film and how that contributes to the things that you're meant to sort of think and feel while you're watching, uh, you know, a film, which a lot of people sometimes film is just a medium to translate a screenplay, in which case you might as well just be reading the screenplay. But there's a lot more happening that, you know, I guess you would call it sort of like unconsciously while people are watching media and it's especially difficult to gauge that with people who haven't sort of like developed the process to understand exactly what it is that's making them feel that way. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, and I, I like, I agree like more than completely. Um, I, I think I, I was lucky that I had a, um, I think it was, I think it was a drama class. Uh, but in, in high school, I think in my junior or senior year, where um, the the teacher was was very into, as you say, like the the visual language of, of film, and we did an exercise actually with um, the Jim Jarmusch film Ghost Dog, where uh, he showed it to, to us this just like room of teenagers and kind of didn't like preface it with anything, and then said, well, like, you know, like what did you think? And and this was probably in like I guess it would be in two thousand one or so, and we were like, oh, that was cool, you know, there was like gunfighting, crime stuff, and like samurai stuff, and like. Like the RZA was in it. Um, and then he posed a couple questions to us and said, what did you think that like the cartoons that the little girl is watching um, meant? Like, why did they have that in there? And why do you think there's a scene where the gangsters are talking about nicknames and, and you know, like, wh- 
what does that mean? And then we watched it a second time, like a week later, with kind of these questions in mind. Um, and I remember a bunch of people coming out of that class being like, I, I can't look at films the same. Like, this is ruined film for me. I can't stop thinking about, like, all the other stuff that's going on that, as you say, is, like, beyond the, the text of it. And, yeah, it's totally a thing you have to learn. And kids just kind of, like, take stuff in, like... Um, mm-hmm. something that we've talked about previously on, on the show is that kids like don't know, um, when, when they're very young, they don't know what they're supposed to be afraid of. Like we, we talked about, um, the nightmare before Christmas of which the protagonist is like a skeleton. And when we watched it with our daughter, when she was two, she didn't know that like skeletons are scary. She didn't even know what a skeleton was. She was just like, oh, he's just like a weird skinny guy. But now <laughs> she's kind of like, oh, like he's supposed to be scary. And so she acts a little bit scared to it. So it's really interesting mm. all the things that like cultural and visual that come together, I think, especially in, in fear and horror. Oh, yeah. And that's that's interesting, too, just because like at that point, like you if you aren't knowing that the skeleton is you know inherently supposed to be scary you are actually kind of missing part of that film which is the idea that they have sort of been otherized by kind of like who they are which is kind of like part of the narrative development of that story so it's just fascinating that you could have someone who just you know doesn't have the context to even conceive of that and that's a totally different movie all of a sudden (laughs) yeah it's just like a happy go luck it's just like here's this funny town of of people and they love christmas they look weird yeah (laughs) (laughs) um so uh you, you are a non-kid haver, and um, with with non non-kid haver guests, I I always like to um, poke a little bit at their their own um, childhood. So since mm. you are a horror movie buff, uh, and we're talking about kids in horror, um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your own experience with horror as a kid. Like, was it was it something that you were into? Was it something that you watched a, as a kid? Uh it was, and I will preface this by saying I had probably not the ideal um, introduction to genre film, <laughs> mostly just because, uh, like, my mom just kind of liked to rent movies from the local video store and just kind of, like, watch watch stuff, and I was kind of just, like, like, I was just there watching stuff that she wanted to watch, so, you know, it was a lot of sort of, like, you know, 90s action movies. It was, you know, would have been things like Lethal Weapon mm-hmm. or Point Break. And but she was also a really huge fan of like Rocky Horror. So Rocky Horror was one of my first ones, which was a pretty good one. But when my mom would kind of like just get stuff that's kind of like newer or stuff that she hadn't seen and didn't know, like uh, I, I don't know the exact context and how I saw this, but I watched or caught glimpses of a child's play. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. around the time that I, I shouldn't have. And I probably, uh, to this day, I can still remember nightmares that I had about the Chucky doll. It was just, it was a little too real. <laughs> uh, the idea of uh, your doll, your action figure that you like playing with, like just grabbing a kitchen knife and trying to like stab you. That was a little bit much. Um, and my other introduction, uh, I think... I, I have memories of the scene in RoboCop where he shoots the lady in between the legs to hit the guy in the dick, yep. the mucker. <laughs> yep. Uh, and that was my other introduction to genre cinema I was seeing. And both of those like left like, you know, like they, they shocked me uh, when I <laughs> when I watched them. And it's very possible that they led me down the route of, you know, what I kind of do today, which is, you know, being very obsessed with this kind of stuff. Um but the only negative effect was from Child's Play, 
that I can that I can remember. And it was mostly just kind of like I had a single mom and she, you know, wanted to watch things in her spare time. And I was just kind of around. So I saw some stuff. <laughs> so I, I it's funny you mentioned Child's Play because I had the exact same or a very similar experience with, with Child's Play. And I think what happened with me was um, I had a cousin who is about 10 years older than me. So when I, and then maybe like eight years older than me, something, so some, you know, old enough that like he was in a very different phase than I was. Um, and he would kind of come over and spend like most of the summer with us, kind of like half babysitting, half just like playing video games, and like getting into trouble with me. Um, and he definitely like showed me, you know, not, not horror, but he definitely showed me like Terminator 2 when I was probably like too young. Cause Terminator 2 is like, what, like 90, 92, 93, somewhere in that, in that range when yeah. I, I would have been like 10. Um, and uh, I, I, he, a little heavy. It's, it's a little Some heavy. And, and I mean, but hey, it, you know, there, there's a kid who's the protagonist, right? It's like a kid's film. Um, yeah. But uh, he definitely showed me Child's Play. And I had a doll that looked very much like Chucky. Um, and I remember it was either was it like a cabbage patch kid or something. It was exactly yes, it was a cabbage patch kids with, <laughs> with, with with like the red hair and the like the jeans overall thing. Which is the genius now that I look back and watch Child's Play. <laughs> I was like, that is actually just a like a genius idea that it, it's very clearly an adult film. But you know, watching it now from someone who grew up with a single mom who and I begged her to buy me like just like shit I saw on TV, and I, I look at it now, I'm like, why would you possibly have wanted that? Uh, like that, that movie just plays a lot stronger to me now as an adult, because it's very clearly an adult film, but, uh, it's very interesting that it plays off of, you know, sort of like the idea of children's media and children's advertising and how that makes its way into the home and that kind of stuff too. So I'd like it, that's a movie that addresses those themes directly. Yeah. We, um, we mostly don't show our kids or it's not like a necessarily decision, but we, we watch everything on streaming. And so there's really no kids advertising on, on streaming to the extent there's advertising at all. Um, right. But we've had a couple instances where our, our daughters got, got a glimpse of kids advertising and you can see like neurons in their brains start to light up and be like, what is, what is this? There's like things and I want them. Um, and we actually had a really funny experience with that where we were uh, watching a game show from the 90s as prep for uh, a, a game show podcast, uh, Game Shows, I Suppose, which um, I, I believe that by the time that this episode comes out, the episode that, that we guessed it will be out. But um, we were watching late on YouTube these episodes of like an older kids game show that had you know, 90s era advertisements on it for toys that aren't sold anymore. And she kept being like, mommy, daddy, I want that. And we're like, that doesn't exist anymore. You can't have it. They don't sell that anymore. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's interesting the, the way that um, the menace to kids in the Child's Play movies uh, would strike me very differently now as a parent than as a kid where like when I was a kid and I saw them, I was like, Oh yeah, that's like, they're in danger. This is fine. Um, I, I've talked about this elsewhere where like, I really struggle to watch movies at all that have like harm or, or threat happen to a child. Um, like it really like knocks the wind out of me in a very physical way. It just kind of fills me with like a, a bodily reaction. Um, and so like, I, I watched the movie train spotting for the first time after becoming a parent, I had seen it before. And, and there were scenes in that 
where harm comes to children that that had made left very little impression on me as you know a, as a non-parent and once i was a parent like i had to stop and like leave the room whereas like if i were a kid watching that or a teenager watching that i'd be like oh whatever you know this is, this is fine so yeah it's totally it's a very different context uh, as as an adult especially as a parent watching that stuff yeah, there's like three different uh, sort of life experiences that lead you to kind of like watch things a little differently. It, w- it was fascinating to me watching Child's Play because we did do it on the show not too long ago. And when we did it, I saw it completely from the point of view of the single mother. And I was like, wow, mom's put up with a lot. of <laughs> Possessed dolls. I mean, what? Yeah, they don't get a break. Crazy. Well, and the idea that like she's a like she's a working class mother. She doesn't have time to see what her kid's doing all the time. So like the, the, the most stressful scenes in that movie, honestly, for for me, were the scenes where like the kids skip school because the doll tells them to. And because the this like this, <laughs> yeah. this corporate product has made its way into it into her home and is like activating her child, <laughs> and like that that to me was actually what was incredibly scary about that that film. When obviously like the thing that's you know when you're watching it, I'd say a little bit younger. The thing that's scary is that the doll's trying to stab you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's a it's a physical threat, and you know that's that's actually a, a good opportunity to 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 kind of pivot into talking about like experiencing horror. Um, or fear or as a child, uh, especially as a young child, because I think one of the things that um, made me want to, to do this topic and to, and to get you on was that um, I think so, a lot of the media that to a child registers as as horror is not necessarily horror media. It's, its primary goal is not to terrify. There's that expression like nightmare fuel, um, where in a film like uh, The Secret of Nim. There's a scene with like a kind of a scary awakened owl that is horrifying to a child because of the threat of like physical harm and danger. But to an adult is not like not coded as horror, but a child will take it that way. Or like in something like um, like Pee Wee's Big Adventure, there is the large Marge scene, which I think was probably the scariest thing to me as a child, I think, was that scene. Um and even scarier than some films that I saw when I was a little bit older that were meant to be horror, like like Tremors, for instance, that was one of the early, one of the first horror films that I saw. And really not not actually, like, I guess it's not even really a horror film. As, as an adult, it doesn't even strike me as one. It's more of like an action-adventure film. Mm-hmm. No, com- completely. I mean, for, I would, I would be trying to think, like, because I can't think of a lot of stuff that, like, from when I was a kid that I was watching it that scared me that, like, wouldn't sort of freak me out. I mean, maybe not as much today, for sure. Um, but uh, <laughs> I guess sort of a little bit connected to Child's Play. One of the things as a kid for me that was uh, sort of got under my skin was also that uh, jo- a lot of Joe Dante stuff I found yeah. really creepy, even though it really wasn't horror and i would say that it's a good entry point for people kind of transitioning into horror just because it's not always overtly shaded that way just because joe dante you know coming from the realm of um sort of like mad magazine and and kind of looney tunes that was stuff that he really loved like he always has kind of like a comic manic energy and he did overtly a lot of time try to make kids films but you know the guy's a smart guy and he always he he didn't want to make sort of like you know, uh, I would say like unintelligent kids films. He wanted to always be talking about themes, be talking about serious things. And uh, one that really stood out to me, um, you know, there's obviously Gremlins and Gremlins 2, mm. which are like big ones. Gremlins is probably like a kid's horror sort of like seminal film. 
But something like Toy Soldiers, which actually investigates the idea that how we like sort of like sell war to young boys. Uh, and, uh, you know, you watch something like that now and you're just like, wow, this is actually like a really interesting sort of like military industrial complex satire. And I watched that as a kid. And the thing that freaked me out was when all the little toy soldier guys they like reanimate the barbies mm-hmm. like frankenstein style and he pulls it like straight out of the bride of frankenstein some of the imagery <laughs> yeah gr- gremlins it's it's interesting I- i'm glad you mentioned uh joe dante specifically because gremlins is is something i wanted to mention specifically because it was a, a kind of like a kids or f- it's not a family horror but it's kind of like horror that's pitched at the younger audience and combines horror with like slapstick elements like it's a it's a fairly safe horror film like you're not well yeah and it, it's it's an it's literally an amblin picture right like literally like people would have been programmed that alongside films like et or back to the future like it like spielberg almost made that film yeah which is so it's so strange and it's also the, the strangest thing about that to me is that there was this trend in i think the like the 80s for whatever reason of these kind of like very gory um like b films or like kind of like wacky horror films like that kind of like like not I guess kind of like schlocky, sleazy genre films getting turned into kids' cartoons for like Saturday morning cartoons. Like I'm pretty, com- I'm pretty sure there, there there was a Gremlins cartoon. I believe there was definitely an, att- an Attack of the Killer Tomatoes uh, kids' cartoon. There was a Toxic Avenger cartoon, and like I, I don't, I don't. That's know. really weird because Toxic Avenger is very inappropriate. Yeah, it's extremely inappropriate. It's like there's there's no way that a kid should be watching that. Like Gremlins is definitely like like designed in a way to i think make a kid feel like they are transgressing by by seeing it like they're ooh like i'm not supposed to be seeing this but at the same time like it's not even it's not like like a giallo film or like a no. like a true slasher film or something it's kind of like no wacky, they, they, they do get away with a couple gross effects but it's mostly because it's violence against the gremlins <laughs> who are just kind of like meant to be these otherworldly alien creatures that you're supposed to like not necessarily relate that too much physically to like sort of like humans the way that you would watch you know like an italian horror film uh although to be fair even now that when you watch that stuff it you know when you associate that with you know some of the themes of xenophobia that are in that film then it also takes on like another quality that you're kind of like grossed out by too so um it's interesting i find joe dante is another filmmaker whose work just every time i revisit i catch something else that he was he always had like six or seven different spinning plates of ideas going on despite ostensibly making what was children's entertainment Mm -hmm. Do you think there was something specific or like some some reason that all of a sudden it seems like horror franchises became like very big mass audience hits in, in the 80s? Was there like something specific going on there that you can point to that like led them to start reaching out to broader and broader audiences as opposed, I think, to like the 70s where it was more like very niche like exploitation stuff? Yeah, I mean, I would I would say that I think kind of in the late 70s, I think you just saw like a lot of people realize because the thing for me is that in, in the 70s, when people started making, you know, you started getting some of these Italian exploitation movies that were genuinely really transgressive films, but they were very sort of like viscerally uh, compelling films and you know some people threw them in the in the garbage bin people like lucio fulci were Mm -hmm. you know didn't get any kind of respect on his name until you know like the 1990s shortly before he died poor and alone in his apartment um you know i i think that 
they they just kind of had this visceral quality to them that people eventually found exciting when they made their way over to America. And by the late 70s, American filmmakers were actually replicating some of this stuff. That's when you would get a movie like Halloween came out as a right. giant smash hit. And then mm-hmm. they kind of, I think, together created that collective experience. And, you know, it's something that, you know, sort of like why I personally find genre film and, and horror film compelling is that it's just it's a very um, easy way to latch on to people's sort of like anxieties and to get, you know, um, a physical reaction out of people. And then also you're establishing these very, very simple conventions that then when people kind of have some of those rules in their head and then the second, you know, it's very easy to start a dialectic with your audience that is also physically activated and exciting for people. So then all of a sudden it's, it's a very, for me, it's one of the easiest ways to communicate with an audience physically than any other kind of film that's out there. Um, and I think that that kind of effect was starting to get picked up by filmmakers in the late seventies. So then when the eighties kind of came along, it was kind of like people wanted to see certain genres that they recognized because they Mm -hmm. had a good time, you know, maybe getting spooked by a sudden jump scare or, you know, something like that. It's very simple that, you know, some people just have a lizard brain quality to them that they like seeing things like that. Um, and then all of a sudden people were like, there's an audience for this and it's, they're very cheap and very easy to make. So then you get an entire exploitation craze of people being like, well, I just have to put up like $50,000 and I can get a return on my investment by just some weird guy coming up with a premise and then us, <laughs> you know, throwing a graphic design on a poster to sell that premise. It doesn't even matter the quality of the film. Um, and that's one thing that always made these films special is because they were made so cheaply in that way. Then all of a sudden, you know, there's there's less risk. There's less financial risk. There's less people in suits breathing down your neck mm-hmm. telling you what you can and can't do in your film. And then, you know, boom, the definition of exploitation films is, you know, is, is kind of there for you. And I think that, you know, in the 80s, you really saw the franchise boom is just because both the people funding them realized the broad audience was there and the audience kind of realized that they liked being excited in the ways that genre films were able to get them there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, p- pivoting to like thinking about this stuff from a child's point of view, one of the things that you mentioned Halloween and I was thinking of like Friday, Friday the 13th, too, as things that kids would connect very deeply with because in some level they're speaking to experiences that kids would 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 also uh have and you know halloween really ties into the sense of like the safety or lack thereof of the suburbs and kind of this like the, the kind of like like invasion fear that people would have in the the quote unquote safe suburbs and then friday the 13th uh, you know one of the like stereotypical camp uh, slasher films but as a kid if you were seeing these films this would be simultaneously uh forming your idea of what the suburbs are not just commenting on them because unlike an adult who has a, like a fully realized context of like i know what camp is i've been to camp oh this is a transgressive take on summer camp like you might not have been to camp you might not have no ex- you might have no experience with it and now mm-hmm. this this film rather than commenting on it is as giving you this notion of like summer camp is the place where murders happen the suburbs are a place where like people go around murdering people um and you you mentioned uh joe dante earlier and um one film that i i wanted to call out as as in my opinion like like a decent like gateway into you know introducing the idea of like family horror is the burbs and another joe dante film 
which is very sure. tied up with the notion of family and suburban safety. Um, and I, I, it's also it's also kind of coy about what exactly is going on. So it's not like super violent or super gory or anything. Um, no, there's a, there's implications of cannibalism, <clears throat> and that's about as far as it goes. And then it's more kind of in that sense of uh, paranoia and anxiety about like imagining the kind of other things that's out there. And it's good that you brought up the burbs because I've always found the burbs to be one of sort of like as Joe Dante, because I think it was well received at the time. Mm-hmm. And but as Joe Dante has been kind of like reclaimed in some of his, you know, things like Gremlins 2 are seeing kind of a rejuvenation and even even things like matinee are the burbs. I, I find is is talked about a little less now, even though it was one of his more popular films at the time. And I've always really liked The Burbs specifically because, again, you know, it it reminds me a lot of um, Hitchcock's Rear Window, mm-hmm. which um, I always latched onto as a weird story about a guy who really, really wishes that there was a murderer killing his neighbors because like, he has no idea the entire movie. He has no proof for anything that he's saying. He just has this because he's a he's a, a, a I think he's a war photographer in the film mm-hmm. and he is he's deeply bored at home because he's he's sick. He's injured. He he's home. You know, he's stuck in mm-hmm. his house and he's just bored. So he, he's imagining what if the story came to me and he's very excited by that. And Hitchcock always kind of like replicates that in his style where the camera is always voyeuristically moving around in a in a way that's exciting and it really interrogates the idea of like there's this really perverse feeling of he wishes that there was violence happening in his community just so that he can uncover Mm -hmm. it and be excited for a second and the burbs takes that uh a step even even further um by having him wish that there was like a family of cannibals living next mm-hmm. door because he thinks that suburbia is always being encroached upon by, you know, this this sort of other. And I I, I think that it's like, you know, that, that he needs to restore normalcy. There's like this unhinged performance that Tom Hanks gives in that movie that I've just always really adored. Um, and yeah, I think it just, it really nails the psychology and hysteria of sort of uh, suburban America. And it felt really apt to me rewatching that film. I think I did that last year in the age of something like QAnon and stuff mm-hmm. like that, yeah. where just, you know, people are just, they, they, they have like, you know, there's, there's this need for a conspiracy and stuff like that. And again, like that film is an entertaining surface level film, whether you, you know, apply that to it or, or not. And uh, yeah, you're right in the sense that like, it's not um, for, for, for kids. It's not like a particularly graphic film. No, it's, it's almost like something like like uncle buck. Almost. It could almost be like a John Hughes, like kitchen sink (laughs) suburban family comedy. It's just got that little extra edge on it. Like if it were a John Hughes film, they would not actually turn out to be cannibals at the end. Like there would not actually be, because the the, the ending is kind of revealed that he was like kind of correct, right? Like he wasn't exactly correct. He was right that they were up to something murderous, I believe. Right. Yes. Yeah, you're you're right because at the at the end of the film, it's it, I, I can't remember exactly what it is because because you're right that there there is kind of like a and I think a lot of people did a kind of like object to the ending because they thought it kind of like didn't get the theme right. Although I think that Dante is just such a good visual filmmaker that he realizes Hanks's unhinged desire for that stuff anyway. But yeah, you're you're right in that I I can't remember the exact details. I, of it, I but think they, they're they definitely... stealing bodies to use the bones to make 
China or something like that. I believe I, I feel like right. it's something but along it, that. But line. it's so absurd. I remember it does come across still like comedically by the end of the yeah. film, even when all like the sort of like uh, cops and paramedics and everyone show up. There's still like uh, this feeling of uh, there's a little bit of relief there, but also the, the, like what they discovered was so strange that and they weren't like entirely right about it either. It's interesting. Rolling back uh, to something you said earlier, you mentioned Hitchcock and kind of comparing it to the Burbs, and um, this this didn't occur to me until until you mentioned it just now. Um, I, I think that that there's a tendency to not think of Hitchcock as as horror almost because you know I mean even though the the man made Psycho, which in many respects like informs all horror that came after it at, at some level. Um, I watched a lot of Hitchcock when I was a kid because they had the Alfred Hitchcock Presents um, show was was on Nick at Night around the time that I was, uh, you know, of, of the right age to kind of be staying up late watching that. And I also watched like, um, I think it was Rebecca. There were a couple other things that I saw. And, you know, I, I had totally stopped thinking of them as being horror. But in terms of like kids engaging with with heart, it's ab- absolutely something that I watched a ton of, and it's so interesting that I've just kind of like memory hold that completely. Yeah, no, you're like there's um like a, a lot of people kind of hold him in the realm of I would say like I guess thriller now because mm-hmm. they they seem tame now, but when they were coming out, like they were pretty perverse movies. <laughs> like even a movie like Vertigo, which is you know like for all intents and purposes kind of like I guess a detective story. When you think about it, it is a mystery film, but like the mystery there is like, you know, reveals some like sick stuff kind yeah. of like about the character's views on 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 romance and things like that, that like it really is like a a a twisted version of kind of like a Hollywood romance film in that kind of way. Um, and I, I bet you at the time it was pretty horrifying and some of like the stylized lighting in that film, especially. And, you know, like there there is almost like something more cosmic happening there, despite the fact that, you know, they are more classical um and you know today they they definitely seem a little bit more um sort of tame even though you're right something like the shower scene in psycho basically the visual vocabulary of that like pretty much informs most horror that would come Mm -hmm. out and and uh we just did a deep dive into into lucio fulci that's going to be coming out soon and we were shocked to discover that uh for a guy who was kind of known as like the gore maestro uh this is totally off subject for kids because lucio fulci is (laughs) (laughs) you cannot show a child anything lucio fulci like lucio fulci shocked me uh as an adult and um, but it was just fascinating to see how m- many lessons he kind of pulled from Hitchcock, even though he did. He doesn't really consider Hitchcock horror either. He can his definition of like horror was something more like H.P. Lovecraft, mm-hmm. like fantastical, something that couldn't be understood, whereas thriller has plot. <laughs> it's a guy trying to stab you or something like that, you know, um, but the idea of kind of like a succession of images, which is kind of like how Hitchcock always defined it, which is what he, you know, was really emblematic in that shower sequence, which was just like, when you really look at that sequence and you watch it and you even pause it, you don't actually see anything in that scene. It is just the way that it's edited together 
is what really sort of, you know, implies what's happening there. And your brain just kind of does the rest for you. Um, yeah, so. I, I've been watching a bunch of um, Dario Argento stuff recently, and it's very much the same. Like, the editing is so masterful where you don't really see anything, but it leaves these terrifying impressions. Like, you feel as if you have witnessed something, like, very explicit, but it's really just, like, brief brief hints um, and, mm-hmm. like, implication of, of motion. Like, you'll see a brief flash of motion that, that suggests something awful has happened that re- realistically is is feels much worse than actually just just seeing it um on the topic of falchi now falchi um went into kind of the the like the like mondo uh like gonzo type stuff didn't he at, at times yeah falchi was known as basically like he he was known for um he did the film zombie mm-hmm. and he also did the film. Um, we just did his entire gates of hell to hell trilogy, the beyond and stuff. And he was known for, uh, I, I don't know if you've ever seen Argento's Inferno, no. but th- that's, it's very much sort of like a dream logic film where like the narrative makes absolutely no sense. It is just a series of nightmare set pieces and it's, it's a compelling film to watch. And Fulci combines that just with like the most explicit uh, longest uh, duration gore you will pretty much ever see in your entire life and he came from a background of he's literally dr lucio fulci he uh he he performed autopsies and stuff oh, so interesting. his gore is just absolutely repulsive the, the reason that i mentioned mondo though is because um and and kind of in that same direction almost is i remember as a kid though uh the faces of death series was extremely popular when I was like an early teen, like that was something that was like circulating among my friend group and everyone was like, Oh, have you seen this? Do you remember this scene in it? <laughs> Interesting. No, I, I actually have still never seen faces of death. It's not very good. It's, it's like kind of like, it's, it's the sort of thing that, um, uh, and th- this is, this is getting onto a subject that I, I really wanted to, to, to talk a bit about was um, it's, it's not very good. It's not very scary. It's not very believable, but it does feel very transgressive. And like the whole pitch, and I think this is kind of part parcel of of the the mondo genre is that it is a transgression. You're seeing things that you ought not to be seen that, that ought not, mm. not to be seen that you can't see anywhere else. And I think that there's an aspect of as a child or or you know a kid watching horror. It almost doesn't matter what it is because, like, it feels transgressive just seeing it. Like, I remember um, going over to a friend's house for, like, a sleepover, and he had um, It on VHS. Oh, obviously, God. this is, this is obviously, like, the 90s It, which I, I don't yeah. know if, if you've, you've revisited it recently, but it really doesn't hold up that well. Um, mm. um, Tim Curry does, absolutely does. Uh, there's, like, a few, there's a few segments, like, segments of it that are very terrifying still. Um, but that that emotionally destroyed me when I was like eleven or or twelve. Like I was definitely too young to see it. Um, but the the sense of transgression of this thing being this like forbidden piece of media was almost stronger than the actual media it, itself in, in like a very interesting way. And I guess my my question for you is: Do you think that um, these like these horror films that like clearly the studios knew? like young teenagers and maybe even kids were going to watch. Do you think that they were thinking about that as they were designing and like marketing this? Uh, that's a good question. I'm, I'm not totally 
sure um, on on that front. I mean, I think some people who you know, I mean, I get it depends on what kind of film exactly people were making because a lot of exploitation filmmakers would have been aware that their films were going to get slapped with an X rating, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they just you know were were it was never going to happen. But but for other filmmakers, like it, it's completely possible that they were like you know at least thinking about that. I mean, someone especially we talked about him a lot, but but Joe Dante specifically. You know, he was making studio films like this would have been a huge consideration when it came to studio genre films, when when people were getting kind of like bigger amounts of money that they needed to broaden the audience. And I mean, like every time someone is handed a giant wad of cash, the best thing that you can say to them is I'm going to try and make as many this viable to be seen by as many people as possible. And that's how you get, you know, you know, John Carpenter. Uh, is a good example of this because he you know a lot of the time you know he got away with some pretty damn transgressive stuff in his films i mean like assault on precinct 13 is not something uh that i would ever show a child but (laughs) when you get into you know studio the the more studio fare that he would end up doing same with the thing by the way um i would never i don't think that that is at all appropriate but there are a couple films in his filmography that he even even though i think that they're still masterfully done that he definitely made with money in mind and one of those films for example is christine Mm -hmm. oh yeah which is a you know uh it's ostensibly kind of like uh his his riff on like a movie like greece when there was a lot of sort of 50s nostalgia uh in the 80s there and he kind of saw it as like a bit of like a, a a weird thing that people were nostalgic for that time period. So he has that time period come back and start like killing the children. And the the nerd kid gets infected by kind of like this sort of like macho posturing that came with sort of mm-hmm. like the power and the status of, you know, America's obsession with, you know, uh, the car. Um, but th- that film is like kind of on the borderline because it's a little... Some of the kills are still a little bit scary. I'd say there's just one major one where the car like crushes mm-hmm. uh, the one kid, which is a little bit much. But the rest of it is kind of just more of like a creepy ghost story where the car is kind of just like following people around. And it, it, it's shot in the same way that like Michael Myers and kind of like those mm-hmm. dirty over the shoulder shots where it's kind of like stalking people and stuff. And it's, you know, it's just the image of like a car on fire and a car sort of like corrupting some a character that you've grown to like mm-hmm. and things like that. So it's interesting because I think when he made that film he considers it like kind of like his crass corporate compromise film, <laughs> but it's a very strange though, film. Yeah. Even though it's still, it is a recognizably like a, you know, a John Carpenter film and it's well, it's well done and it's still creepy. But like, you know, I would say like that is, you know, sort of like an entry point for a filmmaker like that, considering the fact that he needs to have, you know, a kid audience actually show up and watch his films, especially after Halloween was such a smash success. And then the thing kind of like bombed horribly. Right. It came out so, fi- like famously at like the same time as E.T. and people were not having it. <laughs> no, everyone went to go see E.T. So Christine was his reaction to that, that his being a bomb and E.T. being a hit. Christine came out next and he signed on to it. And he said that he signed on to it mostly out of just kind of like it was a one for them type situation. So it's, it's interesting because the, the John Carpenter films that I did watch as a kid, which I, I, like, I don't think you would call either of them horror, but they're very John Carpenter-y films films are um, Big Trouble in Little China and Escape from L.A. Uh, and and I watched those a, a ton of times as like a pretty young kid, probably like nine or ten or like eleven or so. 
Um, and I, I remember watching Big Trouble in Little China, like with like with my dad a, a bunch of times, um, and and like very John Carpentery, but not not certainly not horror. Those like kind of horror elements. Um, that that was actually kind of like on my short list of like if you want to expose kids to this sort of sort of art in a way that won't like completely destroy their brains that stuff like that is kind of an interesting way it's, it's more violent uh, which i think mm-hmm. is like a separate conversation but um it, it has moments of like horror-ish transgression like i'm, I'm specifically thinking mm-hmm. of like the the kind of descent into the enemy base um in uh big trouble in little china has like some some pretty like kind of gruesome uh like cl- claymation work uh or yeah. i guess it's like prosthetic work um, and so, like, you kind of get a little, a little taste of what you would get in something like the thing without, like, throwing them into the deep end. Yeah, because you just you you really don't want to throw them in that far. I feel. I mean, like, I don't. I haven't had these considerations yet because I am I am not a parent yet. And but it, it's interesting because I do have this consideration for um, my girlfriend a little bit, and not necessarily because, you know, like she, she really likes horror films, but it's just, it's interesting as someone who is so desensitized to this stuff, because I indulge so much of the grindhouse that I feel like even watching, you know, some Lucio Fulci films, I was, you know, some of them were less shocking than I anticipated. And when I showed one to my girlfriend, because I was like, you won't believe some of the stuff that happens in these movies. And I showed her house by the cemetery. And when I watched it, I was like, oh, this is like the most tame Lucio Fulci film that I've seen so far. <laughs> and she was watching it. And she was horrified, like absolutely horrified by some of the things that were happening in that film. And I was aware of that. So I, I didn't necessarily feel bad, but I all of a sudden I became more aware of I was subjecting someone to something. <laughs> um, and, and, and I feel like that's probably got to be the feeling you have as 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 a parent that you, you know, it's it's it, you know, it's tame for something might be tame for you now. And then you I imagine you become more aware mm-hmm. as, you know, maybe they're witnessing it or you're sitting there watching them witness it that you're like, oh, someone has a different you know, yeah. can process this completely differently than I might. Totally. It's, it's almost like you're preparing them for a brain fight. And it's like, <laughs> is their brain strong enough to handle this? Like, have I adequately prepared them for this? And this is not just something that comes up with, with horror, frankly, but with, with really all media selection. We, we did a whole episode on, like, what constitutes inappropriate media. Um, and, like, what do we think is not appropriate for kids? And, and you know, like, the shortlist for us is, like, you know, uh, gore, like very real violence, like war-like violence. Um, mm. But w- an- another thing was um, racism and like mm. racist tropes, which are very common in children's media in a way that those those other things aren't. And so like we were watching um, Peter Pan earlier this year and uh, there's, there's a lot of old-timey racism in that and we were like that's so interesting i haven't watched peter pan in a long time there's a song called what makes the red man red where it's all like cigar store indian style character like really like there's literally a chief that comes out and is like me take him you woman like it's it's hard it's like very 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 like i'm surprised there hasn't been like an online um you know like uh uh, i hesitate to use the term but you know struggle session about it (laughs) and uh um so so like we were like oh like we can't even begin to explain that 
this idea is like an idea that you can think about, but like you have to understand it in the context of our time. It's like, no, 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 you just have to hit fast forward. Like you can't, you can't give them the context fast enough or deep enough to be able to handle this information and not mess you up uh, in, in some way. And um, thinking about that in the term of, in the context of horror, I think there were two things that that helped me kind of grow up in my appreciation of horror. And one was realizing that a lot of what what seemed like horror as a kid really wasn't like primarily horror. Like I I remember um, I saw aliens when I was probably too young to see aliens uh, and it scared the heck out of me. And then I watched it again like a couple years later when I was like 14 or 15. I was like, oh, wait, like this is like an like an action film primarily. Like there are parts that are like quite tense and a bit scary but like it's not a horror horror film it's like a sci-fi action film it's like you can feel kind of good about what's going on like you kind of get the sense that like the protagonists uh might actually win just at great cost um and so so that recognized that like and i mean I, i mentioned tremors earlier which is a movie that like um was that was the movie that my wife saw that was when she was much too young and um like she still will not will not watch that denise still will not watch that movie um but uh, that that's one that i revisited when i was like 14 or 15 i was like oh like this is funny like this is a very funny film and the other thing was the other thing was realizing that um there are like artisans like craftspeople who are who are putting thought into like making these things like they are they are artifice and craft and like there is you know 10 people thinking about how to design this shot in a way that is scary and i think the, the realization that there is like effort and work and thought going into it and like it, it kind of um like when you see the the wires and the pulleys that are allowing it to happen um kind of like distances you a bit from it where you're like oh like i'm watching a piece of spectacle i'm not watching a documentary about like something that could happen to me yeah, that 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 distance can definitely uh, help you, or at least remove you from some of like the the more frightening aspects of something that you know you know a kid wouldn't have that because again they don't even have that context. They're they're just like you're just showing me a direct line to another world right now. Like there's not this idea of the, there's a director, there's a production team, those are actors. Like that some for for some kids like that doesn't occur to them until much later. I know I personally. I didn't realize that directors did things until like, you know, I, I, I think I had like the DVD for like Star Wars Revenge of the Sith and like George Lucas had bonus features where he talked about stuff about it. And I was like, oh, <laughs> people are, uh, you know, making these. And I, I don't know, I probably would have been like, you know, something like nine or ten mm-hmm. probably when I did that. Um, so. You know, and so, again, like that thought doesn't occur to people until late. And that's assuming you have the curiosity to, you know, click on special features even. You know, you're not having someone curate stuff for you. Yeah. And, um, yeah, it's it's really it's it's a very interesting thing, um, the, the way that like the, the context of the, the context around the art, uh, like has a big impact on how you perceive it. But in, in a lot of ways, doesn't necessarily lessen the emotional um impact although uh so i I wanted to do like one one last pivot uh before we get to like some recommendations of kind of like uh quote unquote horror that you could maybe use to to dip your kids feet into the pool without like throwing them into the deep end um i wanted to talk kind of about like 
I, I guess you might call it like fun goth or uh, like dark fantasy stuff along the lines of like Adam's Family, uh, Edward Scissorhands, Coraline. Um, I guess on the fantasy side, you have stuff like Labyrinth, uh, I, like The Last Unicorn, Secret of Nim. Um, so in, in, in the, the kind of the gothier stuff, like, do, do you consider something like Adam's Family to be like a horror? Like, what do you consider that? Do you consider it to be like a horror comedy, a like goth comedy? Like, what what is that to you? Yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of hard. I mean, I, I haven't answered that question yet. And weirdly enough, we just actually had this discussion on our own show because we did um, uh, our first look at uh, the Jiangxi genre, which mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with that at all, but it's it's sort of like Chinese folklore. We were talking about sort of like Hong Kong horror. Is that, is that the, the, like, the like hopping vampire like kung fu yes. stuff? Yeah. Yes, that's the hopping vampire stuff where it's specifically it's like their version of what we would call zombies and vampires where it's these Taoists – uh, these Taoist priests uh, reanimate these bodies, and a lot of the time they come back as vampires, and then you can sort of like control them with talismans. And we watched um, a, a version that was like a direct horror comedy where you have these guys like, you know, doing Jackie Chan kung fu gags while fighting, you know, like an undead creature that's trying to like suck your blood. Mm-hmm. And so we had we had like a huge back and forth trying to like figure out. We were just like, you know, genuinely for me, I didn't find this scary at all. And mostly because I had seen, you know, like it doesn't really lean into any of like the frightening scenes a lot. It's not very stylized to be frightening. It's it's mostly like a kung fu comedy in the same way that like, you know, you would watch Jackie Chan fight a guy and then he would get hit in the face with a ladder and you would laugh. It was a lot of that. But all of a sudden there was vampires in the mix. And we were like, is that really enough to have like some horror folklore enough to actually make it, you know, actually horror or not? Um but I mean, I, I also wouldn't say that it's entirely not. So I mean, there's there's kind of like you know, I I feel like it's it's kind of up up to the viewer at that point, mm-hmm. it, you know, what your own definition of horror is. Because I mean, as I explained earlier, like I would consider you know certain things that other people would consider thrillers horror. Like I think a movie, for example, like Michael Mann's Manhunter, is a horror film. Mm-hmm. Despite the fact that that really uh, is like one of the earliest crime procedurals. Um, but it's just so very detailed and such an empathetic look at, you know, trying to um, get inside the mind of a serial killer that I find that it gets so subjective and fantastical. It enters the realm of being scary and especially the way that, you know, he endangers his family and, you know, the way that he feels like he's almost becoming possessed by his mission and stuff like that. Like I consider that horror, even though most people I think would probably look at it now as kind of like, you know, they think it's kind of like a cheesy CSI with like, you know, eighties pop and synth tracks going in the background. Mm. Um, so I really do think at that point it is kind of up to who's watching it. And especially for kids, I mean, we talked about it already. They can get scared at things that, you know, like uh, we would not find scary anymore. They can get scared during action films. So... Yeah, there's like there could be specific things or, um, you know, I think a great example of something that uh, a lot scared a lot of kids but was was really like more funny than it was scary was um, uh, Judge Death in who framed roger rabbit uh is oh, right, like right, a right. very funny character as an adult but as a kid the sudden like the, there is like a body horror element to it that is mm. terrifying to a child and yet like 
I, I don't believe they have it there anymore. Um, but you used to be able to go to, I forget if it was Disney World or Universal Studios, where they had like like a Who Framed Roger Rabbit section with like that that like that big machine that's like melting all the tunes. And it was like, here's this thing, and then like a family uh, theme park, and it's all it's all good times. But meanwhile, like I I probably know ten people that were like, oh my god, like Judge is it Judge Death or Judge Doom? I I, I forget which one. I can't remember. Yeah, <laughs> um, whichever one it was, when he gets like flattened by the steamroller and turns into the tune, mm-hmm. t- t- terrifying, absolutely terrifying to a kid. So yeah, like, um, and I I really wonder if there is someone out there. I bet there is who was scared of the Adams family movies as a child because well i mean i i would think there are probably a lot of people who were scared of like something like beetlejuice for example yes despite the fact that that you know has again like a comedic um bent to it i think that burton is just you know like very familiar with sort of like you know that kind of very um expressive almost german expressionist kind of style of lighting and um uh, you know sort of like uh, gothic architecture and stuff mm-hmm. like that that he it, it is like kind of like an uneasy and you know it's still kind of like campy when you watch him as a, as as an adult but it's just like you know that that stuff um was scary to people for a reason and even if he's pulling stuff you know from the era of universal monsters that like you know there is again it's kind of like our version of a horror folklore um so, you know, I, I find that, you know, that that stuff, even in a comedic context, can still be scary. I mean, shit, for the I just watched the Bill and Ted movies for the first time mm-hmm. this year. And I don't know if you've seen Bill and Ted 2. I have, but yes. In Bill, in Bill and Ted 2, that, that, that sequence where they go into hell and they get their own subjective, like, horror nightmare sequences, like, the, the stylized of it, it reminded me of freaking Hellraiser. And yeah. it freaked me out. And I was like, this was, like, kind of like a like a teen kids movie comedy in the 90s. There's, and I, um, here I was the, being reminded of Hellraiser, which is a, a movie <laughs> that is, like, you know, sort of like... A, gr- know, a great children's film. BDSM horror. Yeah. So. <laughs> uh, it's, you know, there... Um, I, I think that the the most shocking thing like that that I've come across is in I believe it's in All Dogs Go to Heaven, um, where there is a, a a hell sequence with like a giant like flaming like Satan dragon sort of thing, and it goes on for quite a while, and it's very like um, like Night on Bald Mountain Fantasia style animation where it's like it just goes on, and you're like this is very scary. Um, almost like Goya-esque, uh, like strange, distorted creatures, and yeah, it's it can be, it, it can really do a number. I think on 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 a kid if you're if you're not like expecting that, and you're not like that kind of out of context art experience can be can be very shocking. Um, mm-hmm. So I want to uh, I want to kind of move us into the home stretch and and talk a little bit about like let's. Let's talk about like a couple things that maybe you could use uh, to to get kids into into horror. We've already mentioned a few things. I, I think like Joe Dante's uh, oeuvre in in most of it is probably like worth considering. Um, what are some other stuff that uh, that y- you kind of thought of uh, around this topic? Yeah, well, I mean, I I do think that there are like a couple of the carpenters that do work. I think mostly it's Christine, which has the one kind of heavy death to it. Um, I do think the fog 
you know, you have to be careful at exactly what age it is, but mm-hmm. I do think that that has like a very moody kind of like campfire ghost story atmosphere to it. That is like, you know, it, it's not as viscerally scary as, as other ones. Like the worst you're going to get is kind of like sort of like the hand coming into the fog and grabbing someone. So, you know, like as far as like sort of like content or gore, if you're scared of anything like that, like that stuff kind of works. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for me, I would say one of, I think, in the realm of, say, Dante, that I think is is really strong and one that I watched as a kid and I, I really loved uh, even as a kid and is absolutely worth um, showing, uh, Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, yeah, totally. That is like an all-timer introductory one for me, both because of the way that it is genuinely operating in kind of like a, like a Hollywood musical aspect so, you know, people are I think children are immediately shown that this like very heightened style that, you know, even if they don't have the context for, they will pick up on it because people the the sets are very overtly sets. People don't break out into songs in real life <laughs> like this kind of stuff just very easily um sort of gets the imagination going so then when they start introducing the more horror aspects um you know i i feel like it's just it's a little bit you know muted by that um even though you know you do get the horrifying realization of kind of like you know what rick moranis is you know is actually doing as a character and i mean it is you know actually a very good story about uh an early story for people to pick up on greed and capitalism and the american dream and things like this all happening in a very fantastical context and i mean you 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 can't get enough of those frank oz puppets which are just unbelievable and wasn't the wasn't the original ending of that 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 the the audrey's would like take over the world and like destroy the city but it was it was like too excessive for the level of puppetry that that they had i think that's like a, a rumor or like a, a story that i've heard off of the, the yeah well actually that. not only that it, it was it was mostly um uh it was actually they didn't put it in the film because the test audiences didn't like it it was too cynical it was too nihilistic um but they did shoot it so there is if you get the blu-ray now there is an alternate director's cut which you can get the ending which is a giant action spectacle where you do watch them start selling the audrey twos like in department stores and then they start taking over the world and becoming giant and it's some of the best action spectacle like genuinely ever committed to film watching these like massive puppets like in the context of sort of like godzilla creature feature stuff like taking down america like literally there's one giant audrey 2 that breaks through the american flag in that version of that it's like a very matinee sort of sort of ending isn't it um yeah so that's that's in a similar realm i feel like any sort of like horror comedy stuff will mostly work for kids in 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 that kind of way and for for after a certain while it's just kind of up to you it really just does depend on the age like as they get into being you know 9 10 11 12 Mm -hmm. you know like what it is that they can actually handle because i would i would say like carpenter becomes more accessible as he kind of like gets older as people kind of like get older in that way but then there's some stuff that just like you know i feel like cronenberg you really do have to be <laughs> like uh at least later in high school probably before i mean you know a lot of those people will go out and find it themselves anyway um at at that point but like you know, some of the more psychosexual themes that you'll find in that stuff is a little bit harder to get into. I find it if you can just kind of like stick to to ghost stories, yeah. things even uh, the Babadook might be a little scary, but, you know, things in that realm 
um, things that are a little bit easier to adjust to and maybe don't have people, you know, being like torn apart. I saw one recently, actually. I don't know if you saw this. Did you see the scary stories to tell in the dark? I did for not. Example, I, I, we, we are we are hoping to do an episode uh, on that. It may very well be the, the next one on the on the books, not on the movie. But I, I understand uh, that the movie kind of ratcheted up the age range a little bit to kind of like recapture. Like it seems like the movie is more pitched to like 15 to 18 and the, the books are, are, I feel like, are more like 12 to like 15, kind of roughly. So, yeah, well, no, yeah, I haven't. And, and I mean, I, I guess they, they might have done that uh, a little bit, but I would say that 18 is a little too old for mm-hmm. it because uh, we were watching it and uh, – you know, the I went with my girlfriend and with my podcast co-host, and when we we went, they both had read the stories growing up, and it's it is very kiddie. The film is written by guys who write animated kids films. Interesting, like it's written by guys who worked on the Lego Movie, who worked on Hotel Transylvania, like stuff like this. So th- the actual story itself is very kid-centered and definitely closer to the twelve to fifteen, I would say, age range. But they did pick a real deal horror filmmaker. And I, while I wouldn't say they're, like they're, it's not bloody at all, they did pick a like an actual indie horror filmmaker who has real horror chops. So it is genuinely frightening. Like even I was like the, the, the scary sequences are a little too scary for people probably in like the 10 to 12 to 13 range, maybe depending on, you know, like what they've already seen. Um but like they are very effectively made and well done. And, as, and I, I sat there being like, I don't love this movie, but I do wish that I like if I had seen this movie when I was like <laughs> 14 and I had a bunch of friends over for a slumber party and we were eating Halloween candy like that would be optimal viewing for yeah. that film. So that that stood out to me immediately as like that's going to be a classic, I think, for people who are, you know, 13 14 15 in that age range that's going to become like a new thing that they turn to and i felt similarly actually about these sort of like it movies that they had coming out which were uh, definitely a little like older even than this Mm -hmm. but i didn't really love these it movies but i did feel like you know if i had seen these when i was like 16 or 17 i probably would have been like oh amazing like pop horror you know with but also a kid you know uh sort of in the realm of kind of um you know the the Amblin kids on bikes riding around yeah, having a great like time, goosebumps summer. type horror, like like kids yeah, Twilight I, I would, Zone type horror almost. No, yeah, exactly. I would say that, and I, I thought the, the the Goosebumps movies, for example, that they released recently were too kiddie. Yeah, they and, they didn't and, capture it, they, no, they didn't like capture the, the weirdness horror. of the books, in my opinion. No, and whereas the scary stories to tell in the dark, I felt was like that a, a, a genuinely really good blend of like actual real sort of like horror sequences done in this kind of like old school storytelling kind of way, mm-hmm. and you know you know something that's more appropriate for kids in terms of the the storytelling and stuff like that. Did you so ever those, read the books? That um... I, I still haven't read the books, but I have them. I, I'm looking at them right now because my I bought them. Uh, this year because my girlfriend really really loves them and she said that the illustrations in in them like really genuinely frightened the illustrations are are very terrifying they all have this kind of like melting decayed quality um like almost um almost like a hellraiser uh uh quality to them where like they all the movie very very effectively translates that based on on, the the two people i went with because <laughs> like the creature designs and stuff like that and some of the makeup effects that they do very very 
well done in in that regard and so so like they they do have also like the the books despite being for kids who are quite young do have like body horror stuff in them like i know that yeah um, i know that like like the, the toe <laughs> well there's the toe the spider sequence i i think is one that like stands out yep. to everyone um and i believe that that's that's in the film i believe that they they adapted that um yep, they and yeah there's, there's like the, the the books are interesting and this is this is a good um pivot into into kind of my suggestions um the, the books do an interesting job of uh kind of um swerving wildly between like really terrifying uh body horror or like legit terrifying stuff like like the toe you mentioned the scarecrow is another one where it's just like it's it it very matter-of-factly describes a, a very gruesome act um, mm. but it does not, it doesn't go into like the like Clive Barker territory of like, I'm, I'm going to describe like a bunch of gore, like blood, blood, blood. Um, yeah. and then they'll do something that's very silly and funny. And there's like, like a silly rhyming, um, like there's, there's one story that is, I remember is sandwiched between, uh, like very scary stories, very scary stories in the scary stories book <laughs> where the, the end, you think this monster is going to eat the like the protagonist of the short story and it said the monster just kind of comes up and like blows a raspberry just goes, and that like that, that that's how it ends like it's not it turns out that it's just like a goof and then it goes right into another thing i think that it's important for kids to give them like uh an opportunity to like recalibrate and to like take a breath um so getting into my recommendations, um, I have one for younger kids and then I have kind of a, a broader one for, for like older kids. Um, for younger kids, and this is this is going to be a deep cut, um, there's, a, uh, there's, a, there's a sequel uh, to um, How the Grinch Stole Christmas called Halloween is Grinch Night. And okay. um, it's got Vincent Price reprising his role um, as the as the narrator and the Grinch. Um, and I believe he's he, I'm not sure if it's him singing or if, if they got someone to sing his parts. But um, it, he, he comes back and it's it's a Halloween episode where um, it's it happens in, in Whoville. But basically, there's a certain time of year when um all the who's realize that the grinch is going to come down from the mountain and do something unspecified but but horrible and everyone's like hiding in their house it almost reminds me of like a stephen king uh, uh conceit where it's this like strange societal thing like everybody has to hide inside it's not explained why the reason i suggest it is because um First of all, it has kind of a kid sense of dread throughout where like, you know that the Grinch is coming and it keeps kind of cutting back and forth between the Grinch getting ready and being very vague about what he's going to do. But, you know, it's not good. Um, and then when the kid actually does encounter the Grinch, the Grinch, um, what, what he basically has to do is delay the Grinch by saying, I want you to scare me as best as you're able. Like he kind of like challenges the Grinch to, to, to scare him. Um, and the Grinch sends him into this, um, like, Goya, Picasso-esque nightmare realm of um, these very strange, like, 70s, like, uh, like hippie impressionist sort of nightmare stuff with these, all these, like, distorted figures dancing around with these weird, um, almost like cult-like uh, figures dancing in like a circle around a fire and chasing this kid through this nightmare realm. Um, and uh, we just watched it with uh, our three-year-old tonight. 
and it didn't it didn't bother her as much as I thought it would, but I definitely noticed her like tensing up during the nightmare during the nightmare section and has a very interesting visual language. And I, I would I would encourage anyone listening like to, to just look up like nightmare sequence uh, Grinch night and you'll it's it's it doesn't show anything uh, gruesome. It really is just using like quasi abstract shapes and very Dr. Seuss-esque designs, but instead of being whimsical like they usually are in Dr. Seuss, they're turned into like a nightmare horror realm, and it's very effective. Mm. Um, so that's that's my recommendation uh, for, for younger kids. For older kids, um, I, I think that most of... Uh, we, we already mentioned the Adams Family, and I, I think that that's a good way to kind of, to kind of desensitize kids to like... The, the morbidity and like the, the gothiness like it's it's transgressive in a funny way but um more so than the adams family i would say like tim tim burton's oeuvre larger oeuvre is is a good um way to give kids like a little taste of some horror you mentioned like visual visual language earlier and i think that has tim burton uses a lot of the visual language of horror in a recontextualized way so like edward scissorhands mm-hmm feels like there's parts where it could kind of be going into horror there's like scenes between him and like the the mad scientist that kind of border on like a body horror angle but it never mm-hmm. really goes completely down that realm and even something like sleepy hollow i think um has like horror elements but you you always get breathing room it always like it backs off and gives you like something silly or goofy or usually just johnny depp johnny depping it up um Actually, another thing I would specifically call out is Mars Attacks is, I think, something that gets into, like, horror tropes, but has enough humor mixed in, in, like, a very Joe Dante way at times that I think you get away with it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I even think that his Batman movies uh, yeah. have, have like, like I think that Jack Nicholson's Joker and Danny DeVito's Penguins are kind of, like, grotesque in kind of, like, mm-hmm. a, like a horror monster kind of way. And, again, the way that he brings in the visual language of kind of, like, old stylized, you know, gothic horror and stuff like that just in, into his films. I mean, Batman Returns is, like, a very seminal childhood movie for me. Mm-hmm. I still love that film to this day because it's absolutely gorgeous and because that film just gets weirder and weirder every time I watch it. The fact that that was the big blockbuster of 92 is that's just still astounds me. But the idea that that movie has like no interest in Batman, it is so interested in the idea of Bruce Wayne as kind of like a millionaire and Danny DeVito as kind of like the, uh, playing the penguin as like, also like sort figure, of like actually. like a trust fund baby but because he looks weird he was discarded and kind of like this 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 you know universal monster-esque kind yep. of story and then there's also a psychosexual aspect that gets introduced with michelle pfeiffer's catwoman and then all three of these like psychopaths just kind of like trample through <laughs> gotham city like murdering people like batman just straight up kills people in that movie like it's nuts um, so Tim Burton does feel like actually a good access point, even though like, you know, as an adult, I've kind of grown away a bit from Tim Burton. Yeah. Um, but you know, some of the affection I have for the stuff I watched of his as a child was definitely because it was an introduction to some genre elements. I think that I didn't get from elsewhere. So I still feel like he is a good entryway. I, I think that's fair. And I, I would say that I think Tim Burton has largely grown away from, from, from Tim Burton. <laughs> that kind, as well. The kind of stuff that he did. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the, my, my last recommendation is a very strange one. Um, have you ever seen a film called Nothing But Trouble? No. It's I don't think I have. with uh, Chevy Chase and um, Dan Aykroyd. 
And Dan Aykroyd directed it by the looks of it. Yes, Dan Aykroyd directed it. Um, it's from 1991, and it is a it is almost like a, a, a it's a it's not a very good film at all. Um, it is almost a satire of a like the hills have eyes Texas Chainsaw Massacre type film where um, this kind of like yuppie couple breaks down in this this weird town that's kind of based on the town of Centralia in Pennsylvania where there's been a mine fire burning for like like 70 years so it's it's this like blasted um lifeless area that's just like an endless in in New Jersey that's an endless junkyard and um is run by this like murderous sheriff slash mayor played by uh Dan Aykroyd in, in very bad prosthetics and um uh, it's yeah, it's uh, Chevy Chase and uh, Demi Moore, and Dan Aykroyd's character is repeatedly trying to like kill and possibly eat them, but in like a satirical way, and it makes a lot of it makes use of a lot of the visual language of horror in a, I, I, arguably not very good way. But like if you're a kid, you wouldn't you would probably just find it scary, but um, in like a goofy way. So like there's there's this thing called. Um, I, called like the saw coaster like the razor coaster where it's a roller coaster made out of bones that is supposed to like also kill people but it's like goofy and is presented in a silly um satirical way uh, it's n- I-, I really need to stress though it's it's a it's a bad movie but it is interesting in a very dan Aykroyd way and i actually think that for an older kid um like maybe like 13 14 would be an interesting thing to show them that something that gets into the more like mondo, almost exploitation slasher direction, while still kind of having that that humor satire angle, like as an out, effectively. That's like, well, it's okay. You can. It's it's not really trying to scare you. You're supposed to be laughing at it in a in like a Gremlins Joe Dante way. You can you can step back and distance yourself a little bit from it. That's good. Well, yeah. And as as we're maybe piecing out here, I actually have one last recommendation that's occurred to me here, but. You guys are going to have to wait for it because it actually is not out yet. But I just remembered I saw this at the Toronto International Film Festival. I was just there watching a bunch of films. And I like to take a look at their Midnight Madness uh, run that they do there, which is the entire section of the film festival just dedicated to genre programming. They usually fit about 10 to 15 films in it. Um, And it ranges from, you know, I saw like the new Nicolas Cage, H.P. Lovecraft, Color Out of Space while I was there. That's not for kids. Um, but it is a, a great time if you like Nicolas Cage doing like Vampire's Kiss level acting nice. inside of an H.P. Lovecraft story. It's absolutely and some like Cronenberg-esque like uh, uh, creature designs and stuff. But I did see one called The Vast of Night, which it was a directorial debut by some guy named Andrew Patterson. And it was the closest thing I'd ever seen. And it's very clearly like trying to be this. So it's kind of hard. It's kind of like when you say like it follows is sort of like following in that, that you know, the, the, the 80s horror aesthetic. Like it's very clearly modeled after. But it's the closest thing I've seen to a completely unironic Twilight Zone riff huh. done like modern um, and it, it is sort of like a late 50s period piece about a um, uh, two sort of like local teens. They seem like they're about 16 years old. One uh, runs the local public radio station, which I mean, they only have a town of like, a, you know, like a few hundred people. And all of the people uh, go to a basketball game. And so all of them are kind of like at the school watching the kids basketball game. 
the radio host though is doing you know you know doing his djing stuff that he does and then there's the girl who runs the call center with you know like the manual putting the wires Mm -hmm. back and forth and stuff and over the transmission they hear what sounds sort of like an alien transmission so they and the the movie kind of like very uh intimately follows them as they basically try to figure out what this transmission is and there you don't end up ever seeing the monsters there's no gore it's it's all kind of like completely done as like this just this old school science fiction horror story about sort of like the unknown and the things that you maybe will never see um and the things that are just kind of like out there beyond, you know, your your own plane of vision. Um, but it's very unironic and it's very well crafted and it's very small. And I, I was sat there and watched it going, wow, this is a movie that I think I genuinely like I, I have to get another rewatch out of it, I think. But like I thought it was really effectively crafted for adult viewing. And then I was like, it could not be more appropriate for children and like not really that scary. So it's very clearly trying to do a Twilight Zone short story, you know, in like a brisk, like 85 minutes. I think that's a good place to to wrap things up. Um, So, uh, Josh, where can listeners find you out there in the World Wide Web? Yeah, you can find me dropping hot takes all the time on Twitter at at the Josh L, where you will probably find me posting, you know, some of the writing about new release films that I do. I do a little bit of film criticism on the on the side. I just did the Toronto International Film Festival where I saw a bunch of, you know, sort of like the films that are coming out over the next few months. I unfortunately did see the new Joker film. <laughs> Everyone's out there dropping fire takes on already. I've already muted it. I'm I'm trying my best to not jump into it, even though it's impossible. Um, but when I'm not doing that. I am hosting a genre and exploitation film podcast where we talk about all kinds of uh, action and science fiction and and fantasy and 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 trash movies ranging all the way from, you know, you know, the canon stuff like, you know, stuff you'll find with Hitchcock brick all the way to you know grindhouse stuff you know the bottom of the barrel stuff and we we go in with an open mind to everything that we're watching hoping to find you know good craftsmanship you know because it 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 always did come from high and low places and some of the best high art did steal it from some of the low guys who got there first but just uh were a little too shocking or a little too uh, underseen to actually get the the reputation that they might have deserved. So you can find us doing that at uh, Sleezoids or Sleezoids podcast, and we're basically you know you Google us. We're at on every podcast listener of choice. So. Yeah, and and I will I will give Sleezoids my my personal uh, seal of approval. It's a it's a good podcast. Uh, it's a great like long drive podcast too. They they have they have longer episodes and there's a lot of very thoughtful criticism. So so uh, big ups to you on the content production thanks very much yeah and it's been a delight uh having you on the show um thanks everyone for tuning in to our continuing uh halloweenathon spookafest um stay tuned for more cool uh spooky halloween episodes it's almost a shame that there are only so many weeks uh in the month of october uh but as as we are here on uh parents just don't understand um part of the halloween vanguard maybe we'll push it into november you never know um so uh, we do that too we do a whole month of spooktober content and then we always end up just taking it all the way into november anyway because we're so psyched about it yeah yeah and (laughs) you know what it's uh the the time for christmas to gobble up november is is done they need to be pushed back they need to be taught a lesson uh so glad to be a part of that uh so thanks again josh and uh thanks everyone for tuning in um have a great evening and cheers bye